showing you how to reignite the embers of a distant and lonely relationship into a blazing, emotionally intimate connection. I'm your host, Amber Dawson. I'm a psychologist, author, and speaker. A few of my favorite things are my husband, Grapes, and my adorable little dog, Riggs. Now let's learn how to create a soul crush in love that lasts. Hit subscribe in your podcast app so that simply by listening, you can rekindle your relationship by pouring a little gas on your relationship ember. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be misconstrued for specific relationship advice. For advice for your specific relationship, seek a local couples therapist for relationship counseling for couples therapy. Today on Relationship Psych, I have Stan Tatkin. He's a clinician, author, researcher, PACT developer, and co-founder of the PACT Institute. I first read one of Stan's books when I was in graduate school. The book was Wired for Love. And now I know he has so many more books from Baby Bomb to Wired for Dating to We Do. This man is putting out excellent science-based books that have to do with attachment and keeping your relationship strong for years to come. He's also an assistant clinical professor at the UCLA, the David Griffin School of Medicine. He maintains private practice in Southern California and leads PAC programs in the U.S. and internationally. So tune in for this very special episode. We hear about creating a great relationship. Today I have with us on the show, Stan Tatkin, as I've already shared with you. And so Stan, I just want to thank you again for being here. And I want to start off with the audience. I mean, many people, I'm sure you have a number of books out there have, have at least read something from you, but can you fill us in personally? What made you decide to get into the field of couples therapy and attachment in particular? Well, it's interesting because the very first couple I ever saw as a trainee scared the heck out of me. Um, I thought I would never do couples after that. So I went through a lot of different iterations of being a psychotherapist, a lot of different approaches, a lot of different modalities. And I, uh, just prior to seeing couples, I was very interested in prevention. I'd already been studying neuroscience and arousal regulation and, uh, and attachment, but I was fascinated with the idea of preventing mental illness by starting with the infant caregiver bond. And that's what I started uh, working with. Um, I went through a divorce and that was uh, the most, I'd say, tragic period of my life. And also I wasn't getting a lot of caregivers bringing in their infants. It was just a hard get. And so I was loving John Gottman's uh, material that he had uh, started producing uh, before he became well-known, his research on, on psychobiology. And I was uh, curious to see whether there really was a one-to-one uh, relationship between early attachment work and adult pair bonding. And it turned out that there is. There is one major difference, and that is the symmetry issue the adult uh, attachment relationship is symmetrical between two adults, autonomous adults. And that's not the case with uh, children. That's an asymmetric relationship. So that is a big difference, but it is the singular difference, actually. 
And, uh, and so I started to make that my study, my research, my go-to, and I never looked back. Wow. I also, I also found, by the way, that that, is, that was going to be the best way for me to help children. To help uh, the relationship. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, I'm wondering, actually, can you give us just a couple thoughts on how you found that to be one of the best ways to help children is to help the relationships of their parents? Well, the, the adult relationship, the couple, uh, is the roof of the house, and the children are underneath that roof. Uh, the parents are the big tuning forks. The children are the little tuning forks. What happens up top happens below, and children learn about love relationships, about friendship, about getting along, teamwork, collaboration, cooperation by watching their parents interact seeing them fight, seeing them make amends, make up, uh, seeing them work together and so on, hopefully. So the children are only as good as the couple system is good. It's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, when, when generals fight and don't get along, soldiers die. Uh, the same thing with parents. Um, they're the leaders, they're the exemplars. Um, home is the Petri dish. Uh, where children learn how community and relationships, empathy, uh, giving and taking works and gender roles and sex assignments and so on. So, uh, so that is why fix the couple, the couple's working well, they're happy, they're taking good care of each other. Children are now able to be children. No, I love that imagery you just gave. Uh, I don't remember your exact words, something along the lines of, you know, if generals aren't getting along, people die. I remember your exact words. Yeah. It was more elegant than what I just got back there, but it gave me a really good visual because I think a lot of the parents I see, you know, they can tell me about uh, the way that they are to their children and they contrast that to how different it is than they are with their spouse. And I, I think you just really gave a powerful visual for like, oh, geez, maybe this is one, a good reason why I should be working collaboratively with my, with my, with my co-general, my co-teammate to be yeah. thinking about how do I provide a very stable, secure, loving family system for my, for my little kiddos. Yes. Uh, it's theater, isn't it? Uh, parenting is theater. It's show, don't tell. Mm -hmm. um, we're showing our kids uh, what it's like uh, to be difficult people, right? And to how to handle each other as difficult people. Uh, how to work, uh, you know, together as a two-person system, not a one-person system. And uh, because we do a thing called uh, social referencing where we cross, I look at you to see how I feel about my other parent. I watch my other parent to, to get a sense of how to feel about you. And so we're, uh, I think parents don't realize that children are constantly taking their behavior, their mannerisms, the way they talk uh, to each other um, uh, all the time with their brains that are developing and, uh, and they, the way they understand what they're seeing changes. But that is what they see and what they see and experiences is what they will do in adulthood. That's powerful. So uh, Stan, I want to get in here talking a little bit about attachment. And I was just telling you that uh, your book, Wired for Love, and I know you have many other books as well, um, is a book that I initially got in graduate school, and I've used in my clinical practice ever since. But if listeners know a little bit about this, I'll introduce, uh, you'll learn a little bit about me here, Stan, in this second. But what happened was in my first marriage, I got married very young, well, not very young, by today's standards, younger than many people, and I got divorced very quickly. 
And I think uh, your book, Wired for Love, was on my bookshelf from school. I'm not sure I ever opened it. But uh, after getting divorced and still in my 20s, I went to my bookshelf and I thought, I want to learn everything I can so this never happens to me again. Right. And I picked up Wired for Love and I went, gee, I wonder how I got through school without fully reading this one cover to cover. And it sat next to my bedside and I really learned the ins and outs of um, attachment. I love the metaphor anchor wave island. It gave me something to ground in that was more concrete, less abstract than some of the other language out there. So I'm wondering if you can give us um, a bit of an attachment summary, high level for people that have never, <laughs> like me, even though I should have maybe known, I wasn't very well familiar. Can you help us understand high level? What is attachment? Attachment has to do with our biological ma mandate, which is to bond to at least one other person. That starts with infancy, right? We're born before we're able to actually uh, function. Uh, we have a, a, a sort of a psychological uh, umbilical cord after birth. We depend on that caregiver or caregivers to survive. And so that is an attachment relationship where I, baby, have a felt sense. In other words, a subjective idea of what is safe and what is secure. And that is changing again as my brain develops, as I become more complex. But it also is the basis for the relationship that extends to all other relationships going into the future. Attachment is safety and security full stop. It's not about love. It's not about uh, you know, discipline. It's not about sex. It's about safety and security, something we all need. And so we are either secure and in the sense that we have the resources to be able to go out and to explore the non-caregiver world and come back to a secure base where we can get refueled, where we can get held and, held and, and cuddled, and also encouraged to go out and to separate and to be ourselves as we develop, right? That's a constant process of separation and individuation. Now, to the degree that I am secure is the degree to which I can separate and, and merge with my parent. I can cling and I can distance without repercussions, or repercussions that make me worried. So I'm, I am rewarded or at least not punished for separating or clinging. And in some families where they are insecure functioning, that's a kind of a culture where the relationships are not centralized. The emphasis is on the self in some manner. I may feel that I'm rewarded more for distancing or more for clinging. And I give up one or the other when that is the case and I adapt to the environment I'm born into. Therefore, I may be more insecure. I may cling more uh, in future relationships. I may distance more. I may confuse autonomy and independence with freedom, but actually it is a kind of attachment neglect where I was expected to be on my own and not be needy and not expect to have attachment values uh, in the family. Or I may come from a family where I was expected or rewarded for staying little, dependent, clingy, uh, sweet, and, not, uh, and, and discouraged from going out, either because a parent or parents were depressed, anxious, uh, sick, uh, you know, uh, traumatized, uh, alcoholic, drug addicted, or whatever. And that creates another 
anxiety about being left, being abandoned. So on one side, island, um, the distancing group, I'm afraid overall of being engulfed, having my freedoms, my independence, autonomy stolen from me, my agency, I resent that, or I am a wave on the clinging side and I'm constantly afraid of being too much, not enough, being abandoned, withdrawn from, punished, and so on. So, and I am deeply ambivalent. And that is really what attachment on the insecure is, is a memory of something bad happens when I depend on you. And it's a memory based on experience. And I begin to arm myself with defenses to protect myself. Those defenses protect me, but look look very um, threatening to the other person. What I'm hearing is it's kind of like, you know, we go through our lives and depending on uh, what we were rewarded for. So if our parents, you know, if we came to them and we were rewarded for being huggy and wanting their attention, we, we do more of that. And if we were rewarded for being independent and not needing someone to tuck us in it at night, we were rewarded that. And it's almost like you're explaining that we learn to do more of what works. We Yes, we do what we think will keep us safe and secure. Hmm. You said something at the very beginning of this that I, I thought was really good. I wanted to highlight, and I think sometimes it gets a common misconception. You said the degree that I'm secure, I can separate and emerge without repercussion and, and also reward, or at least fear I won't be punished. And I think a misconception I often hear is if I'm attached, um, then I also can't be free. And I really wanted to highlight what you said, because it, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that to have a secure attachment also means you can be free. Have a secure attachment is freedom. Uh, to be to completely free is to be isolated and alone. And human primates are not wired for that. There are outliers. We know there are always outliers. People who can be out in the outback and live by themselves and work on the Alaskan pipeline by themselves. Uh, but those are outliers. The great majority of our species uh, are um, uh our tribal, uh, we're herd animals that pair bond within herds, and we are deeply dependent on other human primates. That is a fact. And to deny that fact is to deny biology and deny uh, anthropological facts. So we need other people. We're free within those relationships. That is why those relationships must be fully collaborative and cooperative. Otherwise, we fall under the, uh, you know, the, the, a system of uh, dictatorship or slavery. And that, of course, is not freedom. No, that doesn't sound like freedom to me. So can you help us understand what is secure functioning and how come it's called that? Well, secure functioning is a set of behaviors uh, different from an attachment designation or categorization based on a set of tests or measures. So Attachment, by the way, is fluid and, and is plastic. It doesn't stay throughout the entire lifespan necessarily static. It can, but it's based on current relationships. So it's not like personality. It is simply memory, threat memory of what happens lest I depend on somebody. And that can change and be altered and repaired in any, in any intense dependency type relationship, therapist, teacher, best friend, uh, a family member, or lover. Uh, so secure functioning are a set of behaviors that are, that are 
secure, meaning we go into a relationship as adults, as free thinking, autonomous uh, uh, individuals, knowing we're going to enter into a relationship of conditional or conditions and terms, not unconditional love. It's not childhood, it's not to be confused. We are getting together because we, we have a shared purpose, a shared idea. Let's do this, let's never do that. We have shared vision for what we wanna do. And together we survive and thrive or together we, uh, we disappear, right? So we're mutual stakeholders, therefore we should be a two-person psychological system invested in good for me and good for you. It's a win-win union. Uh, kind of like a, a three-legged potato sack race where we have to move together or we just don't move. And since we're both invested and we're both pleasing each other based on our design, our culture, our architecture, not our parents, not somebody else's, we are constantly uh, pleasing each other, protecting each other from the wild, wild world uh, and uh, giving each other assurances in a way that the world will never do. In other words, it's a survival team. So it, it's like you're describing this as different than attachment itself. And these are a set of behaviors that we do that uh, can help facilitate security in that unique relationship. Is that right? That's right. Secure functioning partners uh, behaving as such become uh, secure or become more secure over time. And there are many, many models of this over uh, over human history. Anytime people have to band together to survive, they make agreements, they make pacts, they decide we're not going to do these things to each other, we're going to sleep at night, we're going to protect each other and each other's children, and hey, we're going to have commerce, we're going to prosper, we're going to do more than that. And so they get along because they're cooperative and collaborative. They think in terms and must think in terms of fairness, justice, and mutual sensitivity, or they go to war like all other human primates. So it is just a fact of nature and humans that we can work together if we have a common cause, if we have a common purpose, not love. Love is not enough. It isn't. Attraction, not enough. It comes and goes. Feelings, not good for governance. Purpose is what works. We stick to our purpose. We do the right thing when the right thing is the hardest to do. So say we both. You know, this is totally not psychobiological or at, at all. But what's coming? <laughs> but it is actually my mind right now is um, the TV show C. I don't know if anybody's seen it, but I was recently watching it, and Baba Voss is uh, one of the main characters from a certain tribe, and he goes to war against his brother, who's part of another tribe. And this, the TV show C, is set in the future, but we've lost our our vision, and so we're humans, except we, our primary um, sense of way of navigating the world is actually through hearing. And people don't necessarily like Baba Voss. Uh, he hasn't been, or, or the other tribes have not really liked each other, but they all get together against a common enemy, which is Baba Voss's brother's tribe. And they all come together and stand behind Baba Voss in this fight for the, the same sense of shared peace. And it's to have not their land taken away and to get to stay on their land. And that same common goal is what I'm struck with. And I'm struck with all these little tribes getting behind one leader, not because they even like that leader, but for the shared vision, this, the shared purpose. And what I'm hearing you explain is even within relationships, sometimes 
it's like, what is our shared purpose? What is our shared goal? And can we compromise and collaborate there? Which is something I saw in this TV show. That's right. Where are you from, by the way? I heard, an, I heard a little bit of an accent. I'm from uh, Toronto, Canada is where I live right Okay. Now. I thought I yeah. heard something you said again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so, okay. Um, the, here's another thing that's really important. Uh, you, you picked out some, something that's very common to human beings. And that is we unite over a common enemy. And that's quite primitive. And of course, we're looking now at our country, fragmented in pieces, tribalized, and everybody for themselves. We have no unity. We've lost our shared vision. And we do not have a common enemy. So what do countries and leaders often do? Find a common enemy. Now, again, that's a primitive way to bring people together. And couples will do this too. Uh, only it's temporarily as they can, uh, they can find enemies, right? But the more elegant, the more evolved, the more, uh, you know, the higher complexity version of this is we unify according to a shared purpose and vision, not to kill and, and plumage, you know, plunder another, another person, right? And so uh, we have got to watch out for that because that's a simple solution. Find the enemy, scapegoat somebody, triangulate, or, geez, come up with a real reason for being. Uh, that's actually creative and not uh, actually, you know, Hulk smash. Yeah, I like that, coming up with a real reason for being. So yes. yesterday, I did a poll on my Instagram, and I said, what are your questions that you all have about attachment you want answered? And let's say I had like 15 answers or something like that. Four of them were the same question. It was... Uh, can I change my attachment? And you kind of answered this already, yeah. but can you just give us that one and answer again? Yes. Attachment is fluid. It's based on memory. Now, memory is hard to change, especially the memory that I'm talking about, which is procedural memory. It's not the kind that cognitive behavioralists uh, talk about, which is uh, higher cortical regions of the brain that are actually plastic. The problem with those plastic areas is they're very, very expensive to run. They're very, very slow, and they're prone to go offline the minute we start to raise our heart rate and blood pressure. So I may be very smart and very good at thinking things through, but as soon as my 16-year-old gets me to feel like I'm a five-year-old, all bets are off, and now I'm, I'm an idiot right? I'm, I'm a primitive five-year-old and I shoot first, ask questions later. That's the problem we're dealing with with attachment. Attachment is a threat memory that is known, not, uh, not imagined. And so it's easily triggered by threat cues in the environment and our partner is the environment. So we come preloaded with certain facial expressions, uh, at least looking for scanning for facial expressions, uh, uh, eye contact variances, um, vocal variances, um, gestural variances, word choices, and so on. And we'll glom onto those and remember, and we'll go, ah, there it is, same thing's happening again, and now I'm, uh, I'm at war with my partner. This is a human condition. This is not necessarily relegated to attachment. This is all people, all people. The only difference is that attachment and security folks have a set of fears that are predictable, uh, that are not necessarily based on a, a, an exact trauma, but something that's called relational trauma, something that repeats again and again from early infancy. Uh, through uh, late childhood. And so it becomes marbled into the muscles. That's why it's hard to change because 
uh, in my fear of what will happen with you, Amber, I'm making things happen. So I'm confirming my bias every day by making things happen and by using my personal narrative to believe my own mind. And that makes memory hard to change. So I get you to act and react in, in accordance to what I fear. And then you're doing that too. And this is why it's hard for most partners to get out of this because they are uh, acting and reacting to each other at lightning speeds and they don't know what to do uh, to mediate because they're acting faster than thought. They're simply trying to protect their interests. That is so hard. And I think anybody who's ever been in a relationship has probably had one of these moments where you're acting first, thinking second. Always. Um, and if, if you can relate to this right now, what how, how can we begin to notice this is happening? And then what hope do we have for managing conflict differently if this is so deeply marbled into us? Well, if you read my books, I keep talking about the human condition, human primates. I know this sounds this sounds uh, dour and negative, but it is it is a fact, and I think it's actually quite positive. Human primates, all of us, our nature, and by nature, warlike, aggressive, selfish, self-centered, opportunistic, moody, fickle, always aware of what's missing, always comparing and contrasting easily influenced by groups and we're very xenophobic what could possibly go wrong our memories are not accurate we're mostly and this is true we're mostly misunderstanding each other throughout every day mostly our perceptions are like a funhouse mirror if i feel a certain way what i see smell taste goes along with what i am feeling or experiencing or remembering this is uh, this is a problem with all human brains. And if we don't understand it, we're going to be very hard on ourselves and very hard on each other and not realize that we are making errors. These are errors. They're not purposeful, most of them. They're automatic and reflexive based on memory, automation. And if people understood this, they might start to be able to trick their own minds and trick each other's own minds uh, and find workarounds um, as we've done throughout human history to stay out of war and to keep peace and to create community. Very hard to do under stress. And that's the ticket right there. What are we going to do when we're under stress? Are we going to remain um, collaborative and cooperative or are we going to revert to my interests only? That is the straight off the factory line human primate. We hope to raise the bar and start to learn to do better and to create in advance principles that will rein each other in and keep us from doing bad things ahead of time. So we agree, you and I, Amber, that, uh, that um, we do not like yelling. Now, I like it more than you, but that's fine. Um, but, but we do not like yelling and we cannot get business done if there's yelling. And so I agree, Amber, if because I won't know I'm doing it, I do it automatically. My family, we all yelled. As soon as I start yelling and you get uncomfortable, I want you to prompt me because I won't know I'm doing it. Prompt me, and I swear right now, I will yield, I will cooperate so we can get something done. That's governance, and that's how two people can get things done and train each other to work together even under the greatest stress, but that's a practice. And you have to know that that's the only way it can be done.
Yeah, and I think like what you're saying there, I think you said a, a lot of really important things. Um, and like what kind of struck me is you have to become first aware that you're going to do this together. You have to figure out how do I prompt you in a way that doesn't trigger you massively. Uh, many, many of us try, I think, to do this. Uh, we attempt to repair, we attempt to bring our partner down, but we ineffectively soothe them and we often get the opposite result. And I, I like what you said about that prompting and, and that governance. So if couples wanted to have a conversation like this, any tips or suggestions for where do they even start? I think the first place to start always is architecture. What's the point of us? Why are we doing this? What's our purpose? Cannot be love. It cannot be affection. It cannot be history. It cannot be children. It cannot be religion. It's got to be meteor. It's got to be something along the lines of we depend on each other for our lives. That's the great unifier. The bottom line is we depend on each other for our lives. It's not a luxury. It's a necessity. The world is a dangerous place. It doesn't care. Uh, we're going to find out real quick that that's true. Uh, it's the two of us. Um, we're in the foxhole together. The war cannot be in the foxhole. That's self-destructive. So we have to really think long and hard about why we're doing this and what are we getting out of it? What's the payout? Um, because it's conditional. What are we going to do for each other that the world will never do? Or we'd have to pay a lot of money to get it done. Mm -hmm. We're going to do it because we agree to and we can. Right? We're a team. So organization, structure, uh, what is the architecture of this relationship, which is, by the way, a shared mythology. Relationships don't really exist. It's an abstraction. It's in our heads. So that's fine. We're the only species that can make shit up. And so we're making up our relationship. Let's do it consciously. Let's put it together as adults. And let's look ahead and predict, plan, and prepare for what could possibly go wrong. That's adult. That's thinking forward. That's thinking about uh, governance that's thinking about creating safety and security and getting everything we want. Here's an example. Let's say we want love and affection and we haven't been doing it. Let's put in a principle. We do loving, affectionate, romantic things for each other throughout each day, exactly the way the other person wants. So say we both. Now, does that mean we do it um, uh, only when we feel good? No. Do we do it when we're angry with each other? Yes. Do we do it if we've broken up? Yes. Um, uh, we, if we, do we do it if we're feeling sick? Yes. It gets done. It's purpose-centered. It must happen. We must do that. Is that uh, going to pay out? Yes. Is there a downside? No. The only downside is stubbornness, moodiness, um, selfishness, uh, and childishness. That's it. But we're agreeing to do the right thing that we decide is the right thing when it is the hardest. That's the key. And that uses a part of our brain that is more complex and does allow for character building. We're talking about character. Yeah, I hear we're totally talking about character. And I like what you said. This is what we do, you know, even if it's a, even, a good day, a bad day, uh, we're feeling moody, we're feeling stubborn. Because um, one of the biggest... And believe I have to do it. I have to do it every day. I, I have to eat crow every day. I have to, I am angry with Tracy at night. I'll get angry with her for something. And she goes to sleep. She goes to sleep on me. And, and I'm thinking there, I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, how am I going to punish her? What am I going to do? And right. then I remember, wait, we always touch at night, no matter what, if we're angry, I take her hand, I hold it. She squeezes it back. I feel great. Why? Because I did the right thing. 
I'm an adult. And I didn't suffer all night by having all these uh, uh, and, you know, catecholamines and, uh, and, and uh, glu glucocorticoids that are going to uh, uh, send me to an early grave. Um, uh, I chose this. I think the biggest objection maybe you could speak to that I hear when I'm trying to talk about this with couples is they say it should feel authentic. It doesn't feel organic. It's not genuine. Yeah. Screw and that. I feel like you're kind of speaking to that right now. No, no, this is grown up. Screw that. This is, this is grown up pants time. <laughs> Um, um, we don't do authentic. We do what is communal and what works to keep the peace, keep the harmony and to keep uh, the union alive. There's something greater than us and that's not me. That is our union, something we both build, our ecosystem, our terrarium. I crap in it, I suffer. And, yes. uh, and so anything I do to you, Amber, comes right back to me in a two person system, it's stupid. There's nothing I can do to you that doesn't affect me immediately. No bad deed goes unrepaid. Um, once people understand that, they realize that my taking care of you is taking care of myself, so long as it's reciprocal. Yeah, that great answer. I'm like, whew, no punches pulled here. Just direct. This is the way it is. Put on your big girl, big boy pants. Like, this is what's good for you. Well, that's clear. Think about uh, military systems, uh, paramilitary systems. Uh, you're not important. The person to your left and right is more important to you. They're going to save your life. Right. No more selfishness. You got to keep your eye on your pals, right? Um, that breeds a certain kind of love and friendship that goes a lifetime. Uh, mm -hmm. People from all walks of life have been uh, forced into this culture uh, because that is how people uh, are able to work as a team. Same as sports, right? We're talking about team mentality, not solo sport mentality. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just thinking here, like we're talking about team mentality. And I guess one of the bigger objections I see to things like this as well is like, what if I'm willing and my partner is not after we're in a long-term union? What do you think about that question? Uh, time for a sit down and a come to mm -hmm. Jesus. Because mm -hmm. if I'm with somebody in the foxhole, I can't trust and isn't going to protect me. That's not the person I need to be with. That's an unsafe, unfit partner. We have to think about what is fit for partnership. A, per a person who's fit for partnership is not a passenger, is a driver, is a person who's willing to co-lead, is a person who's, who understands that the stakes are mutual and that together we rise or together we fall. There is no if, ends, or buts. However, there's a problem here and that's attachment. Attachment being the biological mandate is the I can't quit you biology. Therefore, uh, we do stupid things because I can't quit you. We think it's love. It's not. It is mother loss. It is infant uh, survival. It is very primitive. And so once I'm attached to you, I can't quit you, even though I should, maybe even must, because you're abusive. You're unfair. You are a cheater, a liar, chronically. You are, uh, right? You are unfit. So there, there we have a problem, and I can't speak to that very quickly because there are all sorts of uh, social uh, intricacies here, uh, social emotional intricacies. But again, we're talking about adulthood, choice, um, autonomy, and that this is an unconditional union based on terms and conditions and principles. If 
attachment is my only principle, I cannot lose you, then I'm screwed. You know, that's a good answer. I'm just left with the visual here. Of what's in my head is two people driving along together. And let's imagine there's a car with two steering wheels. Like, are you both willing to be at the wheel? Or is one person at the wheel and the other one's like sleeping in the back seat? Like, are you both willing to get up there together and, and take turns and be co-leaders as opposed to one person pulling and the other one's like kind of dragging or getting a free ride? Well, it depends. I mean, I'll tolerate my partner sleeping in the back seat, but my partner will also drive and let me sleep in the back seat. Mm -hmm. Or maybe my partner sleeps in the back seat, but my partner does the, uh, um, a lot of the other work. It's not kind for kind. It's a sense that we're both, we're both responsible for the roof of the house. We're both responsible for home. Home is the relationship. We pull our weight. So as long as there's reciprocity in other areas, that might be okay. But I'm getting the sense of reciprocity in different ways that is meaningful to each uniquely that serves that common purpose. Yes, and that's entirely subjective. So if I feel that something's unfair, um, you could argue with me and say it is fair. Or you could say, uh-oh, I can't afford for my partner to think this is unfair. I better listen up and make it fair. That would be the smart collaborative thing to do. So the subjective experience wins. I feel that what you just did was, was, uh, was um, uh, derisive and uh, devaluing. Um, if you don't take that seriously, we have a problem. You have a problem and I have a problem. Therefore, the best thing you can do is take that very seriously and fix it. Because you cannot afford me to be unhappy with you. You cannot afford me to feel resentful or threatened by you because I will act badly and you will pay. So again, a two-person psychological system is more complex than authoritarianism. Why are we attracted to authoritarianism? Because we get told what to do. We don't have to think. We do not have to decide. We do not have to barter. We do not have to bargain. Um, it's done. And that's it. Um, that may be nice, but that's childhood. That's not adult teamwork. Teamwork takes effort. Yeah, I'm getting this real big picture, everything we've said till this point, it's like making a choice to be in this union, thinking about what's good for me is good for you. We are putting the needs of each other at times, even ahead of our own, knowing that if I do this at times, you will also sacrifice for me. But the goal of that is not about sacrifice. It's actually about shared gain. It's service. Yeah. I serve you. You serve me. Yeah. I, um, I give you everything you want. Everything shall be yours. I'm at your service. Um, all my money is on you. You're doing the same with me. When our rights uh, uh, step on the other person's rights, we work it out through bargaining and negotiation. So I'm curious. So we've got this so far to this point, we've been talking really about that shared purpose, that bargaining, that what's good for you is good for me. And in today's part of the world, maybe it's been going on forever, maybe just social media makes it more in my face and popular, is non-monogamy, is... Um, bringing other people in, or even just other things that interfere. Right. And I'm, I'm curious, what is your view on attachment in monogamy? How does that work? I, I, uh, we're not monogamous animals. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, some of us are more, you know, biologically, and there, there, there are nifty uh, um, science reasons for that that will bore your audience, but, but it's a choice. Um, and it's got to be a personal choice or, or nobody's going to do it. Um, and I, I, I have my personal choice, but it's got to be a very personal choice 
to be monogamous. It cannot be because I'm afraid of getting caught. Um, uh, because we're not necessarily monogamous. However, the rules still apply, whether we're monogamous or not, because primary attachment systems um, uh, are dyadic, and primary systems do not tolerate being secondary. This is true in polyamorous communities, in polygamous communities. There's always the two primaries. How do we know? When there's a crisis, they talk. When there's celebration, they talk first. Uh, they're chosen when these communities break up. Um, they still stand. They're the go-to people, right? So primaries have this sort of wired in, built-in feeling of we're at the top of the food chain somehow. Either it's implied or it's explicit. So it still has to work this way. Now, there are some people on the attachment level who do not bond ever. And those were uh, children, we think, who had uh, severe attachment injuries uh, at infancy. Those people always need to be around more people. They'll never bond with one person ever again. They're outliers, and they're surrounded by people who aren't that way. And most of those people will fall off. Uh, and the remaining people are that way. So um, again, a lot of this is biologically driven. A lot of this is not just cultural. Um, and we have to respect the idea that if we're going to bond with other people in a union, it has to be done consciously with purpose, with vision, and with guardrails. Otherwise, it's the Wild West. It doesn't matter whether it's two, three, four, six, 12 people. Would it be accurate to say from what you've just shared, like a lot of the time, even if there is other relationships other than that primary relationship, they're, I guess if they're doing it in a secure way, that they're still have a shared purpose, they're talking about it, they're communicative, and they're still thinking about that shared vision and, and prioritizing the needs of each other. So while there may be other people, they're still doing that in a way that makes sense for yes. the two of them, first and foremost. Yes. yes. Okay. Okay, great. Again, it's 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 forethought. It's uh, it's thinking ahead. It's uh, if then. Uh, what if we do? If this happens, what do we do? If that happens, what could possibly go wrong? But most people do not do this. People in business do. People who are forming uh, churches or communities or doing something, whether you're gathering people around to you know let's start a band, right? But. The only couple, the only system union in the world that does not do this are, is the couple system for some bizarre reason. Couples do not go in thinking, uh, planning, preparing, creating uh, uh, an ethos, uh, um, a structure, how they're going to rule, how they're going to govern, where they're going to go, what if they do this, what if they do that. Um, they go in right away for a, a variety of reasons and then do it ad hoc. And that's why they come to me. Now, I'm struck by one of the things you said at the very beginning, which is love is not enough. And I'm it struck with one of the myths not. kind of oh, that I God. think gets in the way is like, if we love each other, then that's all we should need. And uh, I'm just hearing and, that. And really... I'm an extremely romantic person. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, um, I, I, am, I am that. But I got to tell you, it does wear thin on me. Why do you stay? Because I love them. Mm -hmm. You know, come on. Um, uh, no, that's not the reason for a union. That's the reason to stay in touch. <laughs> it's the reason to keep pictures. It's the reason, you know, to do business perhaps. But the business is of fairness, justice, and sensitivity. 
uh, of equal power and authority. That's the business. So it might be a reason to do business, but it is not the business. It's not the business. No. I like that. It is not the business. The business is we have things to do together. Um, and we cannot do this if we are, uh, if we are a, um, a, uh, a non-working unit of I, me, my, and you, you, you. Uh, that's war. And that's where we'll stay. Great, great point that it's war and that's where we'll stay. That's, that's powerful. So I have one more question here. Yesterday, I decided to read your book, um, Wired for Dating in a Day, oh. because I, I hadn't read it. And I was like, I didn't know this book existed. And I was like, oh, I'll read a few pages. And then I, I really liked it. So I read the whole thing yesterday, start to finish. Uh, I quite liked it. And it covered in there one myth that uh, is like on my newsfeed every day in social media that I look, it is this, you must love yourself first before you get into a relationship or you're in a relationship. Uh, can you just close us out here? And I'm going to get you to talk about other things that you have, but can you answer that one for me? Like accuracy of that one? You have children? I do not. Okay. Imagine telling your baby, baby, you've got to love yourself first before I'm going to love you. Yeah. Um, imagine telling your child that. Uh, um, no. That's not how it works. It's never worked that way. We are loved and we love simultaneously. It is, uh, it is both a back and forth. We learn how to love by loving. We learn how to be loved, right? Uh, in return, all of that is mutual. It's done in real time. It's not done in a cave. It's not done in a book. It's not done you know, in a pit stop. Now, what is therapy, individual therapy? It's a love relationship of a kind, right? It's close and intimate. So it's basically outsourcing. Um, this, is, this is a practice a trial and error process. You learn how to do this. You learn how to do it in real time. You don't do it you know, uh, by yourself, can't be done. And we know this because uh, there are plenty of people who have lived uh, an aesthetic life of uh, monasterial life. And when they do decide to be in relationships, they're back at 11 years old. They never learned anything. They do not know how to handle another person up close, um, right? So there is no on your own meditative uh, process of learning how to, uh, to be in real time live with another human being, which by the way, is the hardest thing on the planet, another person. All people are a pain in the ass. All people are difficult, contradictory, a burden. If you don't know that, you haven't opened your eyes. Yeah, we're all kind of annoying sometimes. Okay, I love that answer. It was so elegant. I'm always uh, one against the you need to love yourself first, but I read your answer. It was so elegantly put um, that I was like, oh, he has to say this on the show. I need him to, I need him to talk about it. So thank you for doing that one for me. So I've talked about two of your books, um, Wired for Love, Wired for Dating, but I know you have other books. Can you tell us more about what other books you have that people can read and learn from you? Oh, there are lots of books on audio, Your Brain on Love, Relationship Rx. And there's one that just came out called Baby Bomb, which I wrote with uh, my partner, Kara Hoppy, on the first baby, welcoming the first baby. It's focusing on the couple, not the baby. Uh, and then I'm, I'm working on a book that will be coming out next year um, called Relationship Repair, which is going by complaint, right? <laughs> so it's all your favorite complaints broken down. Uh, and that's coming out. Um, if people want to reach me, they can reach me at the pact 
pactinstitute.com. That's P-A-C-T. That's where we train therapists all over the world. And that's where my wife, Tracy, my partner, love of my life, we do couple retreats also uh, all around the world uh, today and uh, all the time. Amazing. Well, we'll certainly link uh, the PACT Institute to the show notes so that you can check those out there. We'll, we'll link um, uh, the books as well to the show notes. So if you're interested in those and sorry, when, when did you say Baby Bomb is out? It's out soon? Baby Bomb is out now. Oh, it's yeah. out now. It's Repair that's out next year. Uh, yeah. Relationship Repair. I'm just finishing it up. Oh, I can't wait to see all of the things that people say. That sounds exciting for me. <laughs> that'll, be, um, that'll be a big book. <laughs> I can't, I can't wait. Okay. So you've told us so much information here. If, if people leave us with one thought and that's all they remember from this time with you today, what is one thing you hope they hang on to? Our relationships we know is what is going to determine our longevity, our health, happiness. We know that a secure relationship uh, this has been determined, studied over 80 years now. We know it for a fact. Having at least one secure functioning relationship is our assurance for longevity, happiness, and health. Uh, this is, again, an, a necessary condition. Uh, and so make your relationship secure functioning. Learn about it. Make it happen. Thank you so much. I love that. Learn about it. Make it happen. It's something you can start learning about today. Yeah, there's nothing else to do. Thank you for tuning in to Relationship Psych, the podcast put on by Ember Relationship Psychology. If you're looking for more free relationship help or advice that comes straight from the couples therapy room, check out the free resources and the blog at www.emberrelationshippsychology.com.